The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. You're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows. Hi, I'm Robert King, and you're listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows, where we discuss the hidden themes and deeper layers found in movies and TV shows. Today, we're talking about Avatar The Last Airbender, that classic Nickelodeon animated series that ran three seasons from 2005 to 2008. Joining me today on the panel are Jeff Hecker. Hi, Jeff. Hey, Robert. Also, Catherine Laffrey. Welcome, Catherine. Hello. And Thomas Salerno. Good to see you, Thomas. Good to see you, Robert. It's always a good thing for you listeners to follow the secrets of movies and TV shows. We are on Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Spotify, iHeartRadio, any podcast directory or app. Subscribe to us if you can. Leave a review. We've even got an SQPN YouTube channel. You can also find us on social media at facebook.com slash starquestmedia or on the X Twitter where we are at SQPN or on Instagram where we are at Starquest Network. We always love to hear from you. And don't forget that you can get SQPN merch at sqpn.com slash merch. It's a great way for you to support the network and just show off your various fandoms. So... As I said earlier, today we are talking about Avatar The Last Airbender. There's so much to say about this show. I think I'll just give a quick overview and then we'll get into it. This is a world in which the four classical elements of fire, water, air, and earth are able to be manipulated by individuals who are called benders. And these elements divide the world into these four nations. But only one person in the entire world can bend all the elements together. And that person is called the Avatar. The four elements, as I said, describe the four nations of the world. And the Avatar is reborn, reincarnated through a cycle so that Every time an avatar passes away, the new avatar is reincarnated in the next nation and acts as a bridge between all the nations and between the material world and the spirit world. It's a really awesome mythology and they use it as a great foundation for the show. The plot of the show is about Aang, who is an airbender who is an avatar born as an airbender, but when the Fire Nation attacks, they wipe out the entire air nomad nation. And Aang, who is just a child at the time, freezes himself for a hundred years until he is found by a pair of water tribe siblings. And they journey across the entire world, going through all the nations, trying to help Aang master his abilities as Avatar and maybe more importantly, accept his responsibility as Avatar in the face of a Fire Nation that still wants to conquer and control the entire world. It's full of drama. It's full of comedy. It's honestly one of the best shows I've ever seen, period, despite the fact that it is 
you know, intentionally a children's animated show. But let's, yeah, let's just get into it. There's a lot that could be said. Like I said, it's targeted at children, but it drew in a lot of adults. So I'm curious, what drew each one of you to the series? And Jeff, why don't we start with you? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, from this show came out during my senior year of high school, and I, and I was a fan of like action animation at the time. Like, I still watched superhero stuff and anime and all that. So, it, it was I didn't watch it then, not because I didn't want to, just because it was my senior year, and I just didn't really get a chance to. And then went away to college and still didn't. And it wasn't until about seven or eight years ago that I finally sat down and watched it. And having been an action animation fan my whole life, like I was just I'd always wanted to check it out and. I've since watched it probably five or six times. Like, I just love this show. I think I just finished rewatching it like earlier this year or, or last year or something like that. <laughs> I'm ready to rewatch it again. But yeah, I just, like you were saying, the world is so deep. And that's one of my favorite things about it is just the mythology of the world. Cause you, you start with Aang as the, you, he's the first avatar you know, but then eventually you get to know other avatars through him because he can commune with his past. Really, all he, I think if he wanted to, he could commune with all the avatars. And so you can, and he actually sees, like, lives through some of their lives to see what he needs to do in his current situation. So just seeing, like, this world and the mythology of it develop over, I, I don't know that they've ever said how many avatars there were, like, in the, in other spinoff media, but, like, probably thousands and thousands of years have there been avatars. And so there's just such a deep history and some of that is explored later and, and other things. But yeah, I just love the world and, and just the growth of the characters is just, it's so great to see because Aang starts out as only knowing how to bend air. And he's re- really good at that, but he's just a little kid wanting to play because he you come to find out he ran away from his, in a sense, ran away from his responsibilities and then feels the weight of that. Like he left the world in the, the hands of a Fire Nation attacking, but he comes to learn more, how to master the other elements as well as just, it really wasn't his fault that the Fire Nation attack, but he, he accepts the responsibility to end it. But even the other characters in the gang, Sokka and Katara, like Katara's a waterbender who knows how to do it at first, but then over the series becomes like the best waterbender. And they meet Toph as well, who's an earthbender. And Sokka starts off as like your typical bro. And it's just, oh, girls can't do stuff. And I'm a guy, so I'm better. And eventually he becomes, he's not a bender, but he finds his role as like a tactician and like a sword fighter eventually. And and he's just hilarious through the whole show. So, but yeah, I just love, I could go on forever, but yeah, I just love the show and I'm excited. I'll probably be, it'll probably be on a constant loop in my house <laughs> just because I love it so much. How about you, Catherine? What drew you first to The Last Airbender? My three daughters actually started watching it several years ago on Netflix. I don't know which one of the three stumbled across it first, but they're like, mom, you got to watch this. And if you like Clone Wars and Dave Filoni stuff, this is his stuff too. I was like, okay, I'll check it out. So I started watching it while I was working in the studio. I'd have it on in the background and I was like, oh, this is a good story. So now I think I've watched it three times. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I love it. The art in there is amazing. The backgrounds that look like watercolors, which was always one of my first loves. And so yeah, there's a lot to it to see. And of course, all those great animals like the yeah. platypus bear and yes. the turtle ducks and fun things like that. <laughs> well, it's even funny later when they when you see animals, they're like the I think it's the Earth King has a bear, and they're like, "What kind of bear? A, a turtle bear? A platypus bear? And no, just like a bear." And you don't know what to do with that because <laughs> yeah. all the animals are so like they're like a mix and match. It's amazing. 
How about you, Thomas? What what hooked you up with uh, Avatar The Last Airbender? Well, it's interesting. Like Jeff, I was a senior in high school when this came out. And I was actually going through that phase where I was that angsty teen who was too good for this stuff. Like my, my brother, who's five years younger than me, was watching it. And I was just like, it's a cartoon. It's like kids. stuff. I was going through that phase. OK. And so at first I just dismissed it. But then I, he would be watching it and I would be in the room and was seeing it. And eventually I was just like, no, wait, this is really good. <laughs> and at first I didn't admit that I liked it because I didn't want to admit <laughs> to my brother that I had been won over by the show. But no, eventually we both it, it became a ritual for us. We watched the show together through the final two seasons, and we've watched it together several times since. And we're both huge fans of it and the mythology. I would say that in terms of fictional stories that have influenced my own storytelling tastes, this show is up there with The Lord of the Rings and Star Wars for me in terms yeah. of the, those kind of epic sagas that that just hook me, that I, I want to be in this world. I want to be with these characters. And for me, one of the most interesting things about the show is just the character development and seeing where they go, where they end up from where they start out. And these character arcs are written with such care that, and I've said, and I'm sure we'll get into it, but I've said for a long time that Avatar The Last Airbender has co-protagonists. That Aang and Zuko are co-protagonists of the show. And you could, cause you could technically say that either one is the protagonist. And actually, I remember hearing somewhere that Zuko is in more episodes than Aang is. Really? Yeah, that Aang is actually missing from some episodes. That Zuko appears more times than Aang. Because in, in, in Zuko alone, it, which is one of the, best written episodes of the entire series it's just him yeah. and the and the rest of team avatar doesn't appear so technically zuko appears <laughs> in it for more episodes but yeah I, I just love that they're co-protagonists of this show and they have such an interesting arc and yeah i just fell in love with these characters this was a show that i actually wrote fan fiction for so that's how i ended up from dismissing the show in the beginning to becoming borderline obsessed with this story so yeah i will admit i haven't been back to it in a while probably since the legend of Korra ended i needed a break from this universe but mm -hmm. i am interested in revisiting it and especially since the netflix show is coming out i'm like ugh, i gotta get netflix again <laughs> yeah i might have to oh boy <laughs> well i think you're right to like hone in on the characters which are, they're really the heart of the show. So maybe let's talk about who our favorite characters are. Maybe because I'm guessing it's going to be hard to pick a favorite character. Maybe let's talk about our favorite aspects of at least the main cast. So, yeah. Should we start with Aang, who is... I guess yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. The protagonist, the at least <laughs> nominally the protagonist. I agree Zuko is arguably a co-protagonist. But yeah, what... What, what's your favorite part about Aang? 
complete joy. Yeah. <laughs> this is like a bubble of joy. And it's so funny because this year I have a freshman on the varsity volleyball team. And I kept going, who does she remind me of? And then all of a sudden during our matches, right before the game starts, she just starts running in a circle, high-fiving everybody. And I looked at my assistant coach and I go, have you ever watched The Last Airbender? And he goes, yeah. I go, that's Aang. And he's, yes, she is our Aang. She's just, just this little bubble of joy. La, 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 la. <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> but yeah, I loved it. The exuberance that he had right off the get-go in the show was awesome. Yeah, he's, he's always wanting to ride an animal. Yeah. The first time you see him, he wakes up when they revive him from the ice ball. And the first thing he does, is that a, a, a penguin, whatever animal it's combined with? Him? <laughs> yes. Bob sledding on it. And then... He's in the Kyoshi Warrior episode. He's wanting to tame this giant sea dragon thing. Right. He's, Let's he's ride like, the elephant koi. When they yeah. Did. yeah, elephant koi. Yeah. It's just every animal he sees, he wants it. But, but yeah, no, that's, I, I would agree. I, he's definitely embodies that joy, but he's also, he's, they, this is reminiscent of other heroic fiction and stuff. And he's like that hero character and the hero's journey. Like just seeing him go from this kid, because you've come to find out later, he, ran away from his responsibilities a little bit like the he would found out he was going to be if i remember right he was going to be transferred to a different air temple mm-hmm. because he was too friendly with his kind of master like caretaker guy and so he like ran away from that and it got lost in a storm and froze himself and that and then eventually and because he wasn't around the fire nation attacked and that in the course of that time so like he felt regret for that a lot all the series and you don't really find that out till later so you start out what it's he's i'm not to quote shrek in this but he's an onion you get uh. the layers <laughs> peeled back very slowly and and with the whole show too like the history you're not told all this history of the fire nation's war at the beginning it, it unravels slowly but yeah i just love the fact just how you but you get that development and by the time he's fully embracing the avatar it's just it's so earned it's not like He's starts off having all the powers and is just just the hero character and has can do everything all from the beginning. It's you see that journey. So and he relies on his friends, too, which I think is a great thing to be in a heroic stories is you rely on your friends, not just yourself. And he relies on everybody to do their part over the course of the series. Like he can't teach himself water bending or earth bending or fire bending. Like he has to find a teacher and he ends up being taught by like each of people his age so not necessarily even like a master he learns from masters but like the people who really teach him are his like good friends so he has that humility too yeah i want to emphasize something jeff said what interests me most about him especially when i started thinking about the show more deeply later is that yeah he ran away initially like it, it got me thinking like what if i don't know i'm like that's if link ran away in, in The Legend of Zelda, instead of fighting Ganon, what if he just ran away and was just not there? And it's to me, that made Aang a more interesting hero because he is dealing with that guilt that he's carrying around that initially he doesn't really process. And he, he is this joyful figure, obviously, and he, ha- and he is this innocence and joy about him, but also underneath there's this sadness and regret. And I think... It makes him a more complex character than I think some people might think at first when you just start watching the show. Like Jeff said, this is something they explore. They take a long time to to unravel this. And the episode, I think it's called The Storm, is when you first learn that, yeah, he bolted. He ran away. And that he, like, imagine that. That's like if 
you were living in the 1940s and you took a time machine to now and because you left, the Nazis won. Imagine the guilt you'd be carrying around for that. It just makes him a really fascinating character. But it's that sort of relentless optimism and positivity that he uses as a mask and as a defense mechanism at the beginning that also gives him the strength to hope in his friends, to hope in the power of the Avatar that is somehow chosen him, to hope that he can actually do something to bring about the solution to the violence of the Fire Nation's domination. He's a classic example of the hurried child. I had to read this back in a social studies class in college for education. But when you have a child who gets hurried into an adult situation, there's that breakdown in one of the ways kids deal with that hurried child where all of a sudden they're forced into maybe taking over a parental role in the case of a lost parent or something is there is a tendency to want to bolt and run because they still Mm -hmm. want to take care of, I need to be a kid a little bit longer. And so when I saw Aang's whole setup of he was ready to just be a kid, he had a teacher who was letting him be a kid, and then all of a sudden, well, you're the Avatar and you got to do all this now, that was incredible just to watch that whole arc happen and to see that, yes, he is the classic example of a hurried child. And even later in the series, they're still doing that to him. This is jumping towards the end, but in book three, when they keep, even his friends, keep instilling on him, look, you're going to have to kill the Fire Lord. And even Mm -hmm. back then, when when I was watching it, I was thinking, do you realize what you're telling a 13-year-old kid to do? To kill somebody. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, like, they're not even thinking that I am telling a 13-year-old boy that he has to kill somebody. That's Even if it's to protect the entire world, that's an insane thing to ask of a child. And yeah, he's being thrown into these life-or-death adult situations, which makes it just so genius how they resolved everything at the end. I loved it. Well, and then he's contrasted with this other hurried child, with this other... Mm. kid who is asked to act like an adult and to take on adult responsibility, Zuko. Yeah, that I, I think what one of the things that makes the series so great for me is that sort of parallel and contrast between Zuko mm-hmm. and Aang. Some of the best episodes are when they parallel those two stories. Mm. I love seeing the development in that. And then just knowing that Zuko was horrendously punished by his father for actually doing the morally right thing. Mm -hmm. You can't just throw those men away like that. He was right. And then he takes all that abuse. (laughs) It was crazy. Yeah, and you come to find out that Zuko is the the related to I believe Avatar Roku, who was the fire avatar avatar before Aang. Mm -hmm. And so there's that kind of like friendship of the Sperm friendship of the spirit of, because Roku was friends with Zuko's grandfather. And you even find out that Zuko's grandfather is the one that <laughs> killed Roku because he wanted to 
Roku or the or Zuko's grandfather, Shosen, I believe, mm-hmm. he wanted to use this coming comet to basically take over the world because he's I can rule through peace and like the whole Anakin Skywalker thing. Like I brought wants to bring peace to the galaxy or peace to the world. Or Sauron and bring peace. To yeah, the world. yeah. <laughs> and Roku's no, you can't do that, and so it ends up causing Roku to die. But then that's redeemed through the friendship eventual friendship of Aang and Zuko down the road. You ever notice that all these bad guys, Sauron, the Fire Lords, the Sith, they all sing from the same hymn sheet. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's this, what, I was on the Star Wars podcast the other day, and we were talking about how the dark side seems to look at the natural world and see it as needing order to be imposed upon it. And, and that's the, at least from, from Vader and the Emperor and, and some of the others in, in the Sith, you get this sense that you have to take control of the world. And it reminded me of, of something a priest had said once talking about the Garden of Eden and how Adam and Eve had this choice between the tree of life and the tree of knowledge. And they said, the priest said the choice of knowledge was really a choice to take control, to say, I don't trust God to, to know what's best. I need to control it myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and Thomas and I were just talking about this on the Middle Earth podcast yes. the other day, talking about the <laughs> creation of the, the world in Middle Earth. Yeah, it's definitely like all evil is the same in the sense of they want to take a good and turn it their own even if they have maybe a seed of a good intention in some aspects they it ends up you're turning it to evil when you try to control it right because like sozin sees the disunity of the nations and the disharmony as a bad thing but his solution is not true unity in a regimented imposed order where everything's the same it's domination. It's not uniformity, not it, unity. Yeah, yeah. It's uniformity, not unity. It's not Christ's vision of unity when he says that they all may be one. It's not like that. It's not our individual, because in the unity of Christ, you still have your individual self exists. Whereas in a lot of these fictional universes and in, in real life, evil seems to impose a kind of uniformity on everything and everybody where the self is just completely subsumed. And you see that too, because the Fire Nation is essentially a totalitarian culture. Everybody, you got a lot in book three where, you know, they they start seeing mm-hmm. like Fire Nation society. It's heavily regimented. It's heavily militarized. Their schools are essentially a pipeline into the military. It reminds me a lot of historical dictatorships. Nobody ever has fun at the beach parties. (laughs) That too, yeah. (laughs) The beach party. (laughs) The beach party episode. (laughs) Which which even that episode, like a silly episode about hanging out the beach, like they get into real deep stuff with Zuko. He's starting to realize I'm not, my honor, my worth doesn't come from being the son of the fire lord or from the honor that somebody gives me it's from within myself and you start to see that happen it starts earlier but that's a point of realization for him but yeah y'all were saying it's very similar the fire nation is very reminiscent of the japanese empire yeah the, imperial japan in world war ii very similar to that but it's like the earth nation is not shown as white knights either they have right. their own problems. nobody is yeah yeah it's like hiding know, behind their walls, <laughs> hiding behind their walls and having the, the Dai Li secret police. It's, mm-hmm. You can see that war has scarred the whole world. 
And it's where even the people who are, even the nations that are justly defending themselves are turning to tactics and strategies that are not moral. You know. Yeah, and in, in the Earth Kingdom, like you have the different levels of the city. You have the inner, the inner high class people who are just—it's almost like the Hunger Games. Yeah. They're just like in their own world and going to parties, and that's all they're doing. And then you get out as you expand away from the that inner ring, people are like really struggling in poverty, and because it's just like their but their Earth Kingdom was almost destined to fall <laughs> in the sense of it's it's similar to any kind of big empire it's, it gets too rotten on the inside and it falls and then we see that again and again in history right it's like that old i forget where i heard this but it's and i forget which country this proverb comes from but it's a proverb that goes the fish rots from the head and I've it's not like heard that. yeah i and oh i wish i could remember I think maybe it was a Russian proverb. Don't quote me on that, though. But yeah, the proverb was... The, <laughs> Sounds Russian. <laughs> the fish from the head. But it's that it's like it makes it because you have this core of people in the Earth King. And the Earth King is completely oblivious. He has no clue what's going <laughs> on. He's like this sheltered person while the... Oh, what was he called? Like the Chancellor or whoever that guy was. The uh, was ru- really running yes. everything. Yes. Voiced by Clancy Brown, right? That's all I remember. Yes. Yeah. Great voice actors in the show. That's, oh my yeah, goodness, that's yes. another thing. The voice cast is phenomenal in this show, and if they and I remember seeing a behind the scenes thing years ago where they they said how like they they did the voice over with like everyone was there, and that wasn't common at the time. That apparently at the time it was common to record actors' voices separately. They had the cast recording together. It came off as more natural. They were explaining, and they were playing off one another and doing a lot of ad libbing that they kept in because it was so good. And yeah, can- Sokka's voice actor—he was like a comedian, and it was like a lot of his, a lot of Sokka's dialogue is like ad libs and jokes and stuff that they <laughs> kept in and, and animated because it was just so like off the wall and funny. Let's talk a little bit about Sokka and Katara. I. I- it sounds like, Thomas, you have no experience of a sibling relationship where you start out fighting each other and learn to find some common ground and work together. But, yeah, they, they are the, the point-of-view characters. They're not, they're not necessarily the protagonists, but they are the point-of-view that we see the whole story through, for the most part. And that relationship is, is amazing to me. Um, both, both each character individually, but also their their sibling relationship. Yeah, it's an excellent brother sister relationship. Um, in a story, you don't see them very often like that. Where it was very natural as far as the times that they would tease each other, the times that they would support each other, and the times that would completely harass each other. And you're stupid. I don't like your idea. Those kind of things. But just really well done. I love that. I have a brother who's two years younger than me, and we're thick as thieves as kids growing up. So it was fun to see a relationship like that that I could totally relate to because we'd be off on adventures and causing trouble and harassing each other and fighting. Yeah, no, it was very relatable in terms of sibling relationships, especially that kind of friendly bickering where it's like at the end of the day, even when they're harassing each other, they don't really mean it. And yeah, when push comes to shove, they're going to be there to support one another to the bitter end. And especially as since it's just the two of them, and since I only have one sibling, that really close 
relationship between the two siblings was is really relatable to me. Well, and it's a nice contrast to Zuko and, Az- and Azula because they're like mm. the Fire Nation politics, and it's like you kill like Ozai killed. Well, no, he didn't kill his brother, but he basically it's hinted that he may have led to his father's death so that he could potentially ascend the throne. Even though Iroh would have inherited, I I don't remember if this is in the show, but it might be might just be a fan theory that Ozai kind of pushed Iroh to attack Bossing Say, which led to Iroh's son's death and Iroh was never the same after that. Mm. And so it was like Ozai and and then Iroh didn't have an heir, so it was up to hand it off to Ozai at that point. But yeah, it's such a and yeah, even their sibling relationship, it's it's just so different compared to Sokka and, and Katara. And like I said earlier, Sokka starts out as like your macho men or guys are better, girls can't do stuff. And he's making fun of Katara for her little bit of water bending that she knows how to do. And he goes on that and just his journey of meeting the Kyoshi warriors and making fun of girls can't fight, but Sokka can't really fight at that point. <laughs> yeah. He can't really do much, but his growth over the series, like he eventually becomes like a sword master and he has a space sword for a little bit, yeah. which is really cool. And like his ideas, like he's like the idea guy. So even though he's not a bender in a world that like prizes benders, he finds his place and he's and he and Sokka and the, and the rest of the gang all work really well together. I like how later but, in a late in a much later episode when the, they're doing the prison break and there's that action scene where Sokka's girlfriend Suki takes out all those guys and uh-huh. Sokka's dad is there and he's like, that's your girlfriend and Sokka's just like, yeah <laughs> he's like really proud of that now. <laughs> yeah. Well that's that's a growth arc that most of the main characters have is learning how to learn and learning the humility that it takes to learn from other people and Sokka learning that, Oh no, I'm not as tough as I think I am, but I can learn and I can learn even from the people that I make fun of the Kyoshi warriors and yeah. And the fire nation sword master. And yeah, it's, and that in, that in Zuko, that in, you see the opposite of it in Azula, the refusal to learn and so on. Yeah. So, oh, so many good themes. Yeah. And there's a, while we're on Katara and Sokka, there's a fun, have y'all heard of the fan theory of, about Katara, how it, she likely would have been the next avatar had Aang not been frozen in time. Oh, oh I haven't heard that theory. Yeah, it's a fan theory, obviously, because if Aang had lived to old age and died, the Water Nation is would have been next in line, because that's where the Legend of Korra happens, is after Aang dies, the Avatar reincarnates into the Water Nation. So there's a theory, there's a fan theory that she would have been the Avatar, and that's one reason, or you know, that's hinted as, or not hinted, but that's speculated as, maybe that's why she's like such a powerful waterbender, is like she could have been the Avatar if, if Aang hadn't been, had lived his normal life, but obviously it didn't happen. Mm-hmm. It's just a fan. I, I like that fan theory. I think she would. It would have been cool to see that in an alternate <laughs> Avatar universe. Yeah, yeah how we would started she on develop- those because I like created an entire. <laughs> <laughs> how would Katara have developed as a person though without Aang to just completely get on her nerves and and drive her crazy and and so on? Yeah, and well, and even her relationship with Sokka. Like if oh, she yeah. had been the, the if she had a sibling like. Korra in, in the Legend of Korra doesn't have a sibling, and because when you're the Avatar, you're taken 
pretty early to go train with all these different masters and you're sent to the various nations to learn to learn bending and so and Yang would have eventually gone fire it, at that point firebending might have been tricky for him to learn they were at <laughs> war with everybody but but yeah so yeah he wouldn't she wouldn't have necessarily had that soccer relationship either and she was because Sokka's dad had gone to war and all like the adult men had gone to war and I think it was only like Grand Grand was the only one the only like adult around and it was just a bunch of kids in their village in the are they the they're the southern water tribe or the northern I water think they're the southern, they're the southern aren't they? yeah. southern they're southern okay yeah because yeah. the northern water tribe is like more established built up society so yeah, and she yeah. had to teach their water bending master a little lesson and who <laughs> who can learn yeah. and who cannot learn. <laughs> I loved when she called him out. That was awesome. Just saying, Oh, are you man enough to come fight me? <laughs> That's uh-huh. great. So yeah, I had some flashbacks there of when I was uh, in high school myself and I had an uncle who loved to uh push me to my limits and I played softball and I was playing catch with my dad and so my uncle was with us and He's, oh, little girls know how to throw. And so I threw the ball at him as hard as I could and probably almost broke his hand. But (laughs) (laughs) he respected the fact that I could throw. So Um, (laughs) every now and then you just got to show him what you can do. I I love how this show from beginning to end at, at every level shows that nothing is simple and nothing is perfect and Everybody and everything needs to grow and learn and change. And that's in the individual characters and in their relationships with each other. You've got both natural families and found families and you see the strengths of both and the weaknesses of both. You see the, that in the relationships between the nations and their different cultures, which just that deep dive into Every, a very complex world. It's, it's astounding to me. I, I, I guess that's, I, every time I watch it, it, it just blows me away how, how nuanced everything is and how, how they capture that complexity without making it an overly complicated lore dump, right? Oh, and the character yeah, that embraces all that complexity, Uncle Iroh. Oh, gosh. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh. Best character. As far as letting you see the complexity and then trying to understand it at the same time, the way he just brought it all together, like his line, um, it is important to draw wisdom from many different places. That's when he's like drawing out all the different symbols and, you know, teaching uh, Zuko, you know, you have to learn from all these different cultures. It's funny. I almost felt, is he like the Thomas Aquinas of this world? What's going on? <laughs> In some ways, yeah. Yeah, no, if we were talking about favorite character, like if I had to pick one and it, it is hard, I like Iro would definitely be at least a top contender because just his, yeah, his relationship with Zuko is, it's like one of the best moments for me in the show is when, cause we're, we're spoiling everything. So <laughs> sorry, spoiler alert <laughs> yeah, for our listeners for a, halfway through, but <laughs> for when, an almost 20 year old show. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Cause when Zuko, cause it's eventually Zuko, he's, he basically leaves Iroh because he, he thinks Iroh, because Zuko's banished by his father. For anyone who hasn't seen, he's banished by his father because he challenged his father because his father wanted to do a, have him do a plan. And, and Zuko's, that'll kill a bunch of our men. And he says, I'm, I'm going to call out whoever it was, but it was his father's plan. And so his father, that's why he has that scar. And so it led to Zuko's banishment. And 
Iroh going with him. And eventually, like, they split up, and Zuko's like, I've learned everything I can from you, Uncle. And he kicks him to the curb, and eventually Zuko goes home, and Iroh's put in prison. And there's, and Iroh could be angry at Zuko and could say, You've kicked me to the curb. I don't want you. But at the very end, when they're coming back together, Zuko's going to apologize to him, and Iroh just like grabs him in a hug, and it doesn't matter. It just yeah, and, and could Iroh have been because he was the he was the fire heir. He was he would have been the fire lord had his son not died because he had this. He was attacking Bossing Say, and in the war, his son died, and which kind of led to him like being more compassionate and not just he didn't have that superior attitude that his brother and father and probably a lot of other high ups in the Fire Nation had. He learned from the dragons and didn't kill them because that's another thing is the dragon, the dragons have all been hunted because that was the thing that was cool for the fire lords to do. And, but Iroh let, left a, a, a few surviving, which led to Aang and Zuko learning how to become firebending masters. And he knows how to make a good cup of tea. Yeah. There's a so company much better than I can't that remember leaf the juice. name. Oh, the leaf juice. Yeah. No, <laughs> leaf juice. But there's, oh, there's a tea company that did a bunch of, Fan teas. They did a bunch of teas for Sherlock Holmes with Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh, fun. So they had a whole set of teas that were based on characters. I would love them to do all of Uncle Iroh's teas because I would buy them all. That'd be awesome. <laughs> I love listening to him talk about his good jasmine tea. <laughs> I wonder Just keep if- that tea shop at the very end. I can't remember. <laughs> I don't know. Because uh- he opens the tea shop in Bossing Say. But yeah. I can't remember if it – wait, yeah. It, at the end of the series, in the last scene, isn't that where they all are? They're just hanging yeah, like, so, yeah. at his T-shirt. Yeah, but it's not – yeah, but it's at least not said. Does he leave or what does he do? Because eventually in, in Korra, you find out he died and is living – he was able to like find his way into the spirit world. And I've read some of the comics we were talking earlier but that follow the show, but I haven't read – I haven't. I don't remember if they say what I've read has said Iroh's fate. But yeah, yeah, they're all hanging out at the tea shop and yeah, just, yeah, great character. <laughs> Even as we're talking now, y- you just say his name and I find myself close to tears because <laughs> his, just the, the tragedy and the pathos in, in every aspect of his character. Oh yeah. yeah. His vignette uh, in Tales of Bossing Say brought me oh, to tears. Yeah. When I watched, oh, yeah. I was just oh, going to yeah. say there was that, and unfortunately, the actor because it was Mako, right? Yeah, the actor mm-hmm. Mako yeah. was voice, but he died. I think at the in, during the production of season two, and so they had to recast him for the final series, and and I think they did a decent job, but yeah, the new actor has basically said, "I'm never going to do Iroh's song because it's that's Mako's thing. I'm not going to dishonor that." Which yeah. is cool. The, the last character that we haven't really talked about, well, there, there are two, but, um, first let's talk about Toph. Yes. I love her. <laughs> How can you not? Twinkle toes. <laughs> oh, she gives out the best nicknames. <laughs> oh, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. yeah she's I, like I, Tony Stark of this universe, isn't she? <laughs> She is a metal bender. That's right. <laughs> she figures out how to bend metal. <laughs> oh, I just love the way she's she's got to be barefoot so she can see. Mm-hmm. And then just the other day, I went outside to go get my mail barefoot, and I went, oh, my gosh, I'm such a tough. <laughs> I love being barefoot. I don't care how cold it is. <laughs> it's just something good about feeling the earth under your feet. <laughs> yeah, she's got those calloused hobbit feet <laughs> from walking around and fighting and, and whatnot with her. Yeah, because her introduction is great. Like you, because Aang's searching for an airbend or an earthbending master to to teach him, and he goes to this like wrestling competition, basically. Yes, 
the is boulder. like the final, yeah, the final <laughs> battle in that is is against Toph, and he's because he's trying to find an, an earthbending master, and, and yeah, she's. I was trying to think because we were talking, like, everyone learns, and I was like, well, Toph didn't really learn too many lessons. She was always like, she was always pretty good at air bending, and or, I mean, earth bending, and she figured out metal bending, but like, she was went from only relying on herself to like she began to be able to work with other people because. Which kind of you can blame on her upbringing because she was like her parents. She was like the the precious flower that no one can hurt, and her parents didn't know she was a. I don't think they knew she was a bender, or at least that she was like that powerful. I think she might have had a teacher that was teaching her basic stuff just yeah. to satisfy her parents. But but yeah, she was. Yeah, she's such a fun character. Yeah, Twinkle Toes was the nickname she gave to Aang, and I can't. Remember, I'm sure there were other ones I can't think of right now. I love how in the episode with the play the musical she's the only one who likes her the actor in interpreting her yes <laughs> everyone yes. else is just is having none of it like katara's like that's I not am, what i like yeah, she's like i am not motherly and everyone kind of looks at her like what and then what is it like that the, the kid comes up to, to Zuko and thinks he's in cosplay and he's your scar's on the wrong side and Zuko's like my scar is not on the wrong side or when he's watching the plays they portray me as stiff and humorless and everyone just, everyone just looks at him like what and so but Toph like, is the yeah. only one in they cast a man as Toph like this giant eight foot tall guy and, and she's just enjoying every second of it I love in the animation when they show how she sees. Yeah. You can, mm. that little bit where she's starting in her fight and you see the little sound waves and she's picking out what's going to happen. I love that animation. That was awesome. It bothered me the, like when I was first watching it, it bothered me that they brought her in, in book two, in season two, because she's such a critical character. And I, I thought this is too late into the story to be introducing such an important new character. But I think it's hugely important because I, I, I talked a little earlier about Katara and Sokka being point of view characters, but there's a sense in which Toph is very much a point of view character. And it's important that she come in after we've already gotten to know everybody else to explode our impressions of everybody else because she is seeing them without all of the assumptions and baggage that we have. And puts everything in a brand new perspective. And again, it's what this show is so good at is putting things in a new perspective and understanding like all these different perspectives that you can take on the same thing, on the same character, on the same action, people with good intentions doing what they think is right and hurting other people and having to recognize that and learn to apologize for it and learn from it. And yeah, I just, I love it so much. <laughs> yeah, like one of her great moments was when in book three, when Zuko decides he's going to leave the Fire Nation and he's going to, he's, my destiny is not to defeat my father. My destiny is to train, is to teach firebending to the Avatar and he yeah. goes to try to join them. And he's, but they won't accept him because they're like, he's been chasing them for two seasons and he's like going and camping by himself and Toft goes to try to like hang, try to like bridge the gap and, he like accidentally burns her feet and they're like, yes, she goes back and the rest of the gang is like, we got to take him out. And she's trying to say, no, it was an accident. He didn't actually really hurt me that bad. And you almost see season two when you first see Toph, like anyone who hurts her, she would have immediately been, I'm going to crush you. you know. <laughs> so there's even there. Yeah. There's that growth with her too. 
and you know, and she and her story is pretty cool. It, we've talked a little bit about Cora, but she goes on to she learns she finds out how to metal bend, which Earth benders didn't know how to do, and she basically creates this whole like metal bending society that you get to see in Cora, and it's even it's like super futuristic because their their cities are like retractable and do all this stuff nice. through metal bending. But she eventually goes off and lives in a swamp by herself. She doesn't want to be the one in charge. She wants to just hang out and do her own thing. Yeah. Everybody just wants a little piece. Let's talk a little bit about like the, the influences behind the show and the, like the, the big picture background of things. This is a show that kind of wears its influences pretty heavily on its sleeve. It's it's not an anime, but it is very clearly copying a lot of anime tropes and conventions. It's drawing on a lot of the same kind of Eastern ideas of religion and philosophy that anime draws on. But it's also combining them with a very Western cultural background as well. Yeah. What do you think about the just this idea of, of a bunch of mostly Western writers diving into these Asian tropes and archetypes and and making a, a show around them? The balance is so smooth and fluid, you don't necessarily see it sometimes. You know what I mean? It's, it plays into the story without overcoming the story mm-hmm. and enhances everything. Sometimes when you try to do something in a certain style, you're trying too hard and the style gets in the way of the substance. And I felt like this was just a beautiful balance of what they were trying to show. They created this whole new world in a sense. And so just having that variation that they did on it really helped doing the crazy animal thing where you have the <laughs> the platypus bear and all that other stuff i think that helped just le- lend to the whole otherworldliness of this and yet it still seems familiar the setting of it in asian mythology was what made it really fresh for me and i, I had seen you know actual japanese anime before seeing mm-hmm. the show but i just felt like it seemed more approachable than a lot of Japanese anime, but yet at the same time different than Western fantasies I was familiar with. And so I felt like that. But at the same time, and I'm sure we'll get into this, another influence that it seems to wear pretty heavily on its sleeve is Star Wars. Like okay, a, yeah. lot, a lot of the beats to me seemed very familiar to Star Wars. And as a Star Wars fan already, I like I immediately felt at home in this universe. I'm like, okay, yeah, this is, I'm familiar with a lot of these concepts and these ideas and these story beats. I mean, that at the end of book two, when Aang flees Guru Patik to go save his friends, Luke ditching Yoda on Dagobah to go save his friends, and just like Luke, it goes completely pear-shaped. Yeah. Everything goes wrong. And it's, I'm like, that's that same story beat. And I'm sure it's part of the whole hero's journey monomyth anyway, but it was so similar to the scenario in Star Wars. I'm like, you are wearing the influence very much on your sleeve there, guys. I see what you're doing and I appreciate it. Jedi are basically benders. And I think the new, in the new series, like we, we've seen them bend every element. Like in, we saw airbending in the original stuff and then in, 
Kenobi, you see water bending when he's like holding back the water, and then you see the earth bending when he's like throwing the rocks at Vader, and then Grogu is fire bending in the Mandalorian. So it's like there are uh, Jedi are basically benders. They're force benders. <laughs> but yeah, I, mean, I think what's approachable about it is that you could set this story in in any kind of setting, and it would you'd have to tweak things. But like the it's really the characters' interactions that I think make the story in the this. And but when you set it in this world too, it's, it just builds on itself. It's you have a good story about characters and, and found family and all that and the hero's journey, but then you set it in this mythological world that does have draws from real world cultures, but doesn't try to like do them exactly, but tweaks them to for the show. And I think it just works so well. You have some fun adventures and also some like very serious things with throughout the series with the journeys and the, the various things the characters do. Because I'm not sure it could really easily be set in a different cultural setting. So much about the... Oh, I've tried. That- <laughs> <laughs> I think it can be done, but it's difficult. Well, so much of the idea of the martial arts aspect of bending and the kind of moving yourself along with the power that you're bending along with the element that you're bending the adapting yourself to the world around you the kind of this Taoist sense of balance and flow with nature and the sense of this very buddhist sense of compassion that comes out of it and yet there's also what I think is a deeply Christian sense of not just compassion, but redemption that, and, and that, that comes into, especially in the third book, uh, in the third season, but that idea of not just, uh, winning the fight, but bringing about redemption for the characters even for the enemies. I thought that was a powerful theme and a really interesting way of integrating sort of both Eastern and Western influences in there. We, we already talked a little bit about Zuko joining Team Avatar and the difficulties, the struggles that everyone had with that. But there, we talked about Eero forgiving Zuko. But a couple other moments that really come to mind are Katara has a chance to take her vengeance on the people who killed her family, specifically on the soldier who killed her mother. And she chooses not to. And that, in a kind of an early way, foreshadows the climax of the whole show when everyone has been telling Aang from the beginning, you have to kill the Fire Lord. You have to kill the Fire Lord. And he gets in this amazing battle and finds another way. I liked seeing that, watching it all again, and seeing that theme play out. It dabbles a little bit in the beginning, but it builds with every season of that, having the chance for revenge, and then instead there's forgiveness, there's redemption. We had, what was his name, Jet, go through his whole arc. So in that, that whole thing. Katara wanting nothing to do with the man that jilted her heart. So, but then he comes around in the end and actually saves, saves Aang, gives up his own life. And we have a lot of that happening. And then just watching 
guitar with the blood bender, that scary woman. Yes. Oh my goodness. And then she realizes that, wait, she has the power to do this. And then does she use the her full power that she knows or not? Just knowing limits, knowing when you're crossing the line. So it's like you could, you could see the whole thing building up at the end where it was like, I remember the first time I watched it going, Aang's not going to kill him. There's going to be another way. He's going to, I was like, he's going to take his powers. It's just, it was like, you could just feel the whole thing happening. And, and I, I liked how that all worked out. It was really nice. Although then I think about it now and it's, couldn't that little gymnastics tumbleweed friend of, what was her name? Tylee. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> she could just poke him, you know, take away his powers. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah. At least for a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> it's when Aang is, because Aang learns how to take away the someone's bending through, he, it's like toward the end, he is, is facing up to the fact he's, he thinks he's going to have to kill it because everybody's, like y'all said, everybody's been telling him he has to. And he has this like mythic, mythical experience of, he just goes and like starts swimming out in the ocean. He meets a lion turtle, mm-hmm. uh, which are like, then in Korra, you find out more about the lion turtles, which we won't get into here <laughs> necessarily, <laughs> but they're like super powerful. They're almost gods in the sense of this world. Like they're some of the founders of civilization and he like communes with it and with his past, with the past avatars who show him, here's, here's this thing where I gave my life or here's where I did this thing. If, if I had done this, I could have saved lives. And, but he threw that communion with it, with the spirits, like he gets in touch with, with his inner self and with the avatar in the spirit world and learns that there is another way. He doesn't have to, he doesn't have to kill Ozai. He can stop him by just removing the thing that Ozai takes his power from. Cause if Ozai couldn't bend the, Nobody's going to respect him as a, nobody in the Fire Nation is going to respect him because it's all about what power can, can you control to make others fear you? Because everybody, he was the best bender. So everybody feared him for that. If he hadn't, if the, if a Fire Lord had a child that wasn't a bender, they probably wouldn't have been around too long or they would have mm-hmm. been hidden away or whatever the case may be. That, that sense of, again, it, the idea of power and everyone sort of being locked into this idea of this is how power works and this is how to achieve your goals through power. But, but it's not the only way. Aang from the very beginning is unwilling to sacrifice what he knows is good and right, even for the, the power to save the world. And the Fire Lord, on the other hand, thinks, I need the power to create the kind of order that I think the world needs. And I will pursue whatever kind of power it takes to do that. And it's a, it's an amazing way of looking at a very simple good versus evil without losing the complexity and nuance of every moral decision and every person's character and life and what they do. This has been an amazing conversation, guys. I am so glad we've had it. Do we have any final thoughts to wrap this up? Let's start with Thomas. And yeah, do you have any final thoughts on The Last Airbender as a whole series? Well, first of all, I'd like to say Katang forever. <laughs> this was not the first time I shipped, but I fell for the Katang ship pretty hard when I watched this show. <laughs> I love them. I just do. They're great. And so, (laughs) but no, on a more serious note, yeah, like I said at the top, this show really 
influenced my creative sensibilities at a pretty formative period. And I'll always appreciate it for that. There, there was a time when it was my favorite show that was on and I'd still rank it in my top five, maybe my top three shows of all time. And in terms of forming me as a creative person and both the kinds of stories I enjoy and, and the kinds of stories that I would maybe one day like to tell, this show is a model. Very much so. It, the writing is just stellar. It's spot on. The characters are people who you've just fallen in love with. And you just want to live in their world with these characters. And yeah, I'm Netflix has some big shoes to fill. And whether they can properly yeah. retell this story in live action, you know, when they announce that, I'm like, that sounds like a fool's errand. And, you know, is there any need to remake this story in live action, essentially? But I'm willing to give them the benefit of the doubt and see it. But I just think that as it is, it's a masterpiece on all mm-hmm. levels. And that's pretty much my last word on it. Catherine, how about you? Oh, this is just one of those enjoyable stories I'll come back to over and over again. And oh, I can't wait to see live action Appa. My goodness, one of my <laughs> favorite animals ever. If only you there could, were real flying bison to cuddle up with. Although the shedding issue, I don't know about that. But yes, <laughs> great characters. I can tell I really love the animals in this. So that was definitely enjoyable. There's always something fun to see in each scene. Jeff, wrap us up. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, I, I, I can't top what Thomas said because you know, I'm not super creative myself. As a, I'm not really a writer or anything, but... But yeah, I just, like I said, I've revisited the show multiple times and I'll be revisiting it a lot more times. I have, my kids are young and I'm hoping as they, they're, they're probably a little young for wanting to be into it, but I'm hoping eventually they'll be interested in watching this and other things I like. But I think Avatar is something I can show them and they could, but little kids can watch it, I think, and get into it and like the fun things about it. But then as you rewatch it and rewatch it, it's just, I think it's definitely worth rewatching because you can get so much more out of it over the course of, I, I never saw it as a kid. I only saw it as an adult and it's just, it's one of the, and I love action animation and TV shows and it's, yeah, it's one of my, one of my favorites. Yeah. The only things I, I had on my list to talk about were favorite things were I wish I could go visit the Wan Chi Tong's library, the spirit yes. <laughs> librarian. And, Yes. Oh, that Just guy, a- he who knows 10,000 things. My neighbor's dog knows 10,000 things. <laughs> what a silly name. Never mind. Even, yeah. I no, always I, but want that to make that a, joke. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that episode where they go to this spirit library that's been like lost for a long time is, so is just really cool. And there's just you can just think about like how much knowledge is there that there's untold stories that you could tell about this world. And that's, what's so cool about it is there's so much history in the world. You could there, and they started to release some stories about there's a, there, I, I don't know if it's a single book or a series, but there's a, a novel I think about Kiyoshi actual, the avatar Kiyoshi now and other characters. But I think you see it in Aang or in avatar a little bit, but like I know in core you do, but you like the line of avatars and it's just, there's so much history you could delve into if they really wanted to. And yeah, I just love it so much. And 
I'm ex- I'm cautiously optimistic on the Netflix show. It has some good talent in it. Paul Pisung Lee, I probably didn't say his name wrong, is Iroh. So he's Carson Tiva. And, and if you've seen Kim's Convenience, he's... Mm-hmm. He's the dad in Kim's Convenience. And Daniel Day Kim is Ozai. And then you can't forget the original, the, the greatest hero of them all is Cabbage Man will be in the show. Oh, my voiced cabbages. By the original actor. I'm excited for that. And then and then there is, we talked a little bit before recording, there is an upcoming, I think it's a series of maybe three films being produced by Nickelodeon with the original creators. So there's going to be some kind of sequels with a young adult version of the gang and, and there's been comics that have followed which i have some and they're pretty fun to read but it's it's getting it on screen is, is something i'm excited about so i'm i'm excited to see what they do with those and with hopefully hoping netflix is good the series but yeah just love it so much so and yeah the can't also forget about momo the Aang, Aang's <laughs> flying yes. lemur pet it's yeah i completely understand all of these attempts to expand the world because it's such a rich world to continue the stories of these characters. But I am skeptical that anything is even going to come near to just the beauty and the subtlety of the original series. It's, I would love to be proven wrong. I would love for somebody to come up with something that takes this world even deeper and into more interesting and profound directions. But I am deeply glad that it exists in the first place. And, and it's been great talking about it with, uh, with all of you. I think that's it for this episode of the secrets of movies and TV shows. We would love to hear from all of you listeners. What do you think about avatar? What do you think about all the other projects that are growing up around it? You can leave feedback on our Facebook page or on Twitter or the X Twitter, I should say, by sending an email to us. Leave a comment on YouTube. Visit our Discord community. Go to sqpn.com slash Discord and get an invite to our Discord community. It's active and exciting, and that's my favorite place to interact with with other show hosts and and with all of you listeners um we'd like to take a moment especially to thank our patrons who make this show possible tonight we'd like to especially thank dominic m martin c vicky w s a and rob l their generous donations that's what helps us continue to create the secrets of movies and tv shows and all the other shows we do at starquest You can join them by going to our website, sqpn.com slash give. And once again, thank you to our fantastic panel, Jeff Hecker. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Robert. Catherine Laffrey, it's always great to talk with you. Yes, it was a good fun talk. And Thomas Salerno, thanks for coming. Thank you, Robert. Thank you all for sharing with me the secrets of movies and TV shows. Until next time, I've been Robert King. Thank you, listeners, for listening to The Secrets of Movies and TV Shows on StarQuest. There's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy, The Catholics of Oz. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash oz. We'd like to thank Patrick McCaffrey of Moonshadow Studios for editing this episode. To have your audio edited professionally and with care, check out more of Patrick's work at moonshadowstudios.biz. That's moonshadowstudios.biz. 